I'm making a movie about my own relationship with Ghostbusters and my father and what it was like to grow up around all this iconography and what it was like to go through my father's own basement and find things over time. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, a new generation steps up to answer the question, who you gonna call? In director Jason Reitman's supernatural comedy, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Set three decades after the original Ghostbusters, the film tells the story of a single mother and her two children who move to a small town in Oklahoma and discover their connection to the Ghostbusters and their grandfather's secret legacy. In addition to Ghostbusters Afterlife, Mr. Reitman's other directorial credits include the feature films Juno, The Front Runner, Thank You for Smoking, and the DGA Award nominated Up in the Air, the pilot for the series Casual, and episodes of the series The Office. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Reitman shares insight into the making of Ghostbusters Afterlife with fellow director Eli Roth. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. We can give another round of applause for Jason oh, Reitman. That's, I mean, that's pretty incredible. That's very kind. Thank you for staying through the credits. I know they are a lengthy credit. But they're worth it. You give the, the right amount of Easter eggs. Well, we just shot that last piece two months ago. Really? What made you want we to We shot shoot- the movie five years ago. Right. And then uh, we really wanted to end on that last note. We had already shot the scene with... Uh, with Ernie and Annie, and then those little touches where he actually goes to the old fire hall. We added that. Did you you watch the movie and you just thought, I want a little bit more. Like, we're not done with this. Or- Here's the, I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, the, the funny part is that we brought the movie to CinemaCon in Las Vegas, and it was the first time that the movie got shown in front of a public audience. And my father and I got to sit in that theater and watch the movie together. And my father and I hadn't gotten the chance to do that. Particularly during COVID, my father was being very right. safe. He was staying at home. And for the first time, we're sitting in this theater. There's a thousand people there, and they're they're totally into this movie. And halfway through, my father reach, leans over. I thought, "This is the moment. This is when he's going to tell me how proud of me he is." Yeah. And he goes, "You have to lose that shot." I know. My dad does the same thing, and he hasn't even directed movies, so <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, first, I want to talk about there's. There's so much that I love about this movie. And first, I love about your filmmaking in general that, you know, I think that your films have uh, an, such an elegance to them uh, and the way you move the camera and the performances you get from the actors that, and the way you adapt your style, you know, from, all, you know, I love all your films, even like young adult, men, women, and children. I really, really loved The Front Runner and the way you interwove all of those, those characters. And they're, they're such sophisticated, complex films and then you take on Ghostbusters. How are you able to? And the, and in the first five minutes, I just thought, oh my god, he he nailed it! Like you oh. really, you really <laughs> took the scares seriously. So can you talk about how you sort of took your style and fused it with your father's style? What a kind thing to say. I uh, I, I can't imagine there's another human being on earth that I would be more appreciative saying that I took the scares seriously than Eli Roth. So thank you very much. No, they're um, great. That's, but that's what made Ghostbusters great. Yeah. When you were a kid and you saw it, the ghost scenes, I mean, you were, you had Bill Murray and the guys yeah, to guide you through it, but the ghost scenes were very scary. The ghost attacks yeah. were real. 
I, I've always thought that depending on what age you were <laughs> when you saw the original, it was either a comedy or a horror film. If you were seven like me, horror film. If you were For sure. 15, greatest comedy ever made. And I think that's what was part of its magic. I mean, it's a, it must be one of the only comedies to ever get nominated for best visual effects. Right? If you think yeah. about that, can you think of another comedy? But they were so, but they were so groundbreaking at the time. Absolutely. I mean, there were so many things about that movie. I mean, it's such a cultural you know, icon. Right. That t- Tell me about just, I guess, the first steps of sort of tackling it, the idea. I mean, it's, it's interesting how you've really, you've done such an amazing job of defining yourself as your own person. And, you know, it's just incredible success early Eli, on. I need an audio recording of this conversation. We are so this, this will be, be a fun. No, but, but uh, really as a, you know, to, to sort of follow in the footsteps of, you know, your father, whose comedies I was, I was weaned on from, you know, going back to Meatballs and then even the Cannibal Girls, of course, which I love the shout out in the film. Thank but, you. <laughs> but starting with the writing process with with Gil, how yeah. you chose Gil, um, and how you you really nailed the tone of Ghostbusters uh, without it feeling like a, just a retread of the first one. Yeah, I think there was this uh, unreasonable presumption of my entire life that I would one day direct a Ghostbusters movie. Uh, something that really never made logical sense. But was that from you or was that just in the oh, air? No, in any life? person I ever met. I mean, this is, uh, as a teenager, people would ask me if I was going to direct a Ghostbusters movie one day and I hadn't even announced that I thought I might be a director. And by the time I was making short films and mediocre commercials and uh, and then eventually, you know, feature films, um, I just got asked on a more regular basis whether I would ever make a Ghostbusters movie. Uh, and, and none of my work gave any indication that I would, you wouldn't go from like Juno up in the air, you know, thank you for smoking. Oh yeah, Ghostbusters. I mean, it nowadays it does. I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing, yeah. right? Because you you look at a lot of tentpole movies and there's a lot of independent filmmakers who are making this jump where you really couldn't see any connective tissue. Um, with me, there was this thing that also, of course, that I, I grew up on the set and my father directed it uh, and was one of the co-creators of this thing. And that intimidated me to, to, to run as far away from it as humanly possible. And I, I never thought I would make a Ghostbusters movie. I really never thought I had it in me. And I thought, you know, this is my father's work and other people's work. And But eventually these characters came to mind. This 12-year-old girl who finds a proton pack uh, on a farm. And that popped in my head and I didn't know why. And I used to joke about it. It was more of a kind of like, would you ever make one? I was like, well, the only idea I have is, you know, it takes place on a farm. And it would be a way of quieting people down. Um, but the meta of it, of the kids finding the proton pack, right. it's you finding your own voice, but then finding, rediscovering your father's work and bringing it back to life. I mean, there yeah. were so many different metas. And it's, I mean, it's nice your father's still here to, to enjoy and yeah. appreciate it. But one of the things I, that really struck me in the first, the first, certainly the first 15 minutes of the movie, was I thought, my God, why the hell hasn't he made a horror movie before? Because, <laughs> because one of the things I love about your films is that your, your photography is so elegant, but you're really with the characters that the, it's always the characters that are served first in your films that I, I feel like I really get to know them and get to be with them and experience them in an, in an intimate level. Um, you know, some filmmakers get very dazzling with the editing or the special effects, but your special effect is that you get so enwrapped in, in the character details. And I thought that you really had that, but also you just whipping through the cornfields, playing with the creek, like you cut from a wide shot, the beautiful production design. Tell me about kind of, was it freeing for you as a director to sort of play in a haunted house movie all of a sudden? Uh, Well, I mean, uh, I'll I'll start by answering your first question, which is, 
I've always been fascinated by the technique of horror film and and really admitted to not understanding how it worked. You were kind enough and you visited my editing room, you know, while we were still finding this movie. And I remember the ways that I was asking you questions about horror film technique were felt like cinema 101. Like I felt like uh, there are things about comedy and drama that I think I have a pretty firm understanding of. And when it comes to horror, as much as I am a fan, I, I, I don't understand the magic trick. I, I've, I've, I've stopped movies before and rewinded and, and watched scenes over and over trying to understand, okay, why am I getting scared? What is making me do that? Like, what is, why is this as effective as it is? Because I've never understood. And that even includes not even like straight horror, even like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson knows how to make a scene uh, suddenly scary out of nowhere. And I'd go, wait a second. I wasn't scared three seconds ago. What did he do that's making it this effective? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm intimidated by horror. Uh, so, uh, But tell me about, you, you know, it doesn't seem like you, it's such an assuredly directed film. And first of all, I love the nods when they're watching Cujo and Chucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can feel your love for it. Um, but really in that opening sequence, and then uh, just the way you started moving the camera, was it a different type of experience directed? Was that was your approach differently or did you just approach it like your others? You know, what's interesting is I feel like uh, I'm involved in this character. So, you know, you open with this guy who's driving a truck. He's trying to get away from something. Uh, he's going to lose control of the vehicle. He's going to roll it. And really what I want the audience to feel is the way that I felt watching movies as a kid. So more than anything, from a camera point of view, I'm trying to emulate a style of shooting that you and I both grew up with, which had no virtual cameras. So it's, how do we make sure the camera always feels grounded? How do we make sure we, you know, never use a camera that feels like it's on a drone? Like, uh, everything has to be on a camera car. Uh, everything has to be handheld. We're, we basically don't even use, you know, Steadicam because that was barely in use by the time the 84 film, you know, Steadicam, you know, came to use only a few years before that. So, uh, I'm thinking of it as we're going to go really grounded in the filmmaking, but then I'm relying on my production designer, my cinematographer, my costume designer, when we start talking about the tone of this film and we start watching movies together, I say, it really needs to feel like this. I don't know how to tell my DP, light it this way uh, in order to get this. This is how that feeling, this is how this scene is supposed to feel. I know how to get the actor there. I know where to put the camera. Beyond that, I rely desperately on this group of people that I've been making movies with for years. Well, you can see that. I mean, there's such a an assuredness. It's It's always nice. I always feel... Like, not to be judgmental, but I can sort of tell in the first five minutes if the director has that confidence that they're like, don't worry, oh, I got yeah. it. I got it. Just well, sit and watch the movie. that's the scary thing when you watch a first-time filmmaker who has that confidence and there's a kind of a Kobe Bryant level thing where you're yeah. going, how, how are you already so confident? How do you, how do you know? Yeah. Um, but you really, you really have that because you're not worried about there's the, often directors have the insecurity of they're like, oh, it's got to be funny. I'm going to throw in a joke or I'm going to yeah. lose him. But you really, really keep it grounded. You kept it real. You just like, you know, you were very confident and patient. Um, and then I think the humor really starts, you know, first there's kind of jokes and things when they get to the house, but really once Paul Rudd comes in, yeah, you know, suddenly he allows you, he's like our, you know, Bill Murray. Can you tell me about, were you, did you and Gil write it with Paul in mind? At a certain point, this is one of the rare moves where we didn't write it really with anyone in mind. And I, I wrote this movie with Gil Kennan, who uh, we met oddly playing hockey together years ago. And Gil is a, a is a formal writer, but also formal director. He you know he directed you know Monster House, and he has a new film out right now called uh, A Boy Called Christmas. Extraordinarily talented, and 
he's the one who kind of gave me the confidence that, okay, we could go write a Ghostbusters movie. I don't think I would have done this on my own. Really? It was, it was Gil who brought it up to you? This, I, this no, I mean, I was saying, I have this idea. I don't know if I should be doing a Ghostbusters movie. And I used to hear about writing, par- writing partnerships, and I was always very envious of them. And I had never met someone who had inspired that level of trust where I get in the room with Gil and I go, okay, I know we're going to get there because it's the two of us here. And that's the only reason I had enough confidence to, to try to write a Ghostbusters movie. And you guys had never written together before. You we just had were written friends. a few things but never been made. We had written a movie for DreamWorks Animation. We had written a movie for Amazon. Um, but that was all kind of done in the blind. It was the first time I was like, okay, we're writing a Ghostbusters movie. We're writing something that, unlike anything I had ever made, this is a movie that'll never belong to me. It didn't belong. You know, most movies, while you're making it, you're like, yeah. right now it belongs to me. One day it'll belong to the audience. Ghostbusters never belonged to me. It belonged to people around the world who carry it in their heart and we're either going to thrill them or or make them hate us. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, first, I love Gil's writing. I mean, he's yeah. such a, you know, monster house in the way he really can kind of blend I don't want to call it family horror or family yeah. friendly horror, but like that gateway horror that we loved as kids, you know, that when you see when you're 10 years old, that gives you that thrill, but like gremlins and ghostbusters yeah. in yeah. the summer of 84. Um, the scene with Paul Rudd where, uh, you know, McKenna Grace talk about finding her. I mean, the dialogue between the two of them, when they, when she, he goes into the back of the classroom, they start having a discussion about right. seismology is so funny. And she really is like a, a little Harold Ramis, Talk about, you know, what it was like working with Paul and McKenna and giving her that role. Uh, McKenna shocked us, you know. I mean, obviously, we knew who Paul Rudd was. We knew how brilliant he was, you know. He's, he's, he's as handsome as he is, charming as he is, funny as he is. As sexy writer. as he is. He's, exactly. he's, I believe he is the sexiest man alive Actually, on earth at this moment. Um, is that intimidating working with someone so sexy? <laughs> Did you know it at the time? I, the days I worked, I, I came home, I didn't even know what I had. I was just yeah. lost in his eyes. I, no, but, um, but McKenna, who I'd seen in like I, Tanya and like Captain Marvel, but I didn't really know who she was. And she obviously looked completely different. Just, just completely took me by surprise. And she was able to do those dumb jokes. The jokes were so, you know, I mean, the obtuse, that was a geometry. I mean, her delivery was, was brilliant. Is, She's so And she funny. cared. And she, it, she's someone who had already dressed as a Ghostbuster, I think two or three times for Halloween in advance wow. to getting this role. She loved Ghostbusters. The first time she met my father, she cried. The first time she put on the proton pack, yeah. she cried. So, so those scenes of her down going into, you know, finding the lab, real. it was all, it was all real. Oh for her, yeah. When she got to ride on the side of the car, you know, she's just like complete delight. I mean, uh, and you needed to make a movie with that kind of person. On the other end, Logan, who played podcast. Yeah. He, talk about Logan. Obviously. Yeah. Shout out to Logan. He had never acted before. He's what? so. Did he Lo- have that hair or was that your, uh, we gave it, kid. we gave it a little bit of a, a buzz. Uh, Logan was, Logan's from Dallas. He sent in a video his video was extraordinary. It was like, who is this kid? And he showed up with the same amount of confidence and he arrived on set with the kind of confidence that usually it takes like 20 movies to get up to where he's sitting there with the sides. Like, again, he's 12 years old on his first set. He's like, what are we doing today? Where am I going? All right, I'll be here. What are we having for lunch again today? It just complete confidence. And Those kids are terrifying and amazing. 
Yeah. But yeah. rare. No, I mean, the, the chemistry between the two of them, between all of them, mm-hmm. Carrie Coon, I mean, everyone yeah. was so perfectly cat. I love when he's, when he's like saying goodnight to her and he's like, okay, could, oh, we're moving too fast. I mean, the two of them yeah, were yeah. so funny. Look, and look, and Carrie is one of those dramatic actresses who happens to be brilliantly funny. Uh, they're all great. Finn's great. Celeste's great. Um, that's what made this movie joyful to make is, and, and, and as you know, if you love your actors, yeah, yeah, then making the movie is the greatest thing of all time. If you're struggling with your actors, it's and, hard. You don't sleep. Yeah, and you, you know? can't ever tell anyone how horrible they were. No, like, and, no they were amazing. No, so, but this one and this one is really easy, and I think you probably believe me when I say so. And you can see it on screen. Oh, for sure. They're, they just they love doing this movie. They love putting on the flight suits, and they got excited about every reason that we were doing this and the way we we're doing this. All the kind of practical special effects, all that that got them all excited. They were into it. I think you did a really. One of the things that I, I thought was so masterfully done was the way you you held back the nostalgia that you know we want, and you just dosed it out in the right amounts. Like right when he's about to pull the car, if Ecto when the light goes out, you're like, nope, mm-hmm. you guys aren't getting to see Ecto one yet. Yeah. And then the way you did the chess match and the lights to the proton pack to leading them finally into the lab to finally getting getting the suits, uh, it was really just so beautifully done. That's Again, very kind of you, and it was a very tricky balance. And I know there's people who feel like we got it right. Feel people feel like uh, this is way too much nostalgia. Um, but I'm making a movie about my own relationship with Ghostbusters and my father, and yeah. what it was like to grow up around all this iconography, and what it was like to go through my father's own basement and find things over time. And so it, it's strangely a very personal film for me, even though it's a Ghostbusters movie. Oh, it doesn't, it's, it's not strange at all. I mean, I, I think that only you could have, could have done it. I mean, it, to, the decision to take Stay Puff Marshmallow Man and, and make a miniature this time, but have multiples of them instead of having the giant, I mean, there's no way you can top it. But then you suddenly having Paul run in a Walmart and then there's the demon dog there. I mean, that's, that was one of my favorite sequences. I, honestly, that, possessed. Th- that came out of, like an old trick, which is, I find when you're writing, there's always these moments where you're beating your head against the wall because you think, okay, I'm struggling to write this scene because I'm writing it the way I've seen it always been done before and I want to do it a different way. And in that moment, I was going, all right, what's the opposite of the normal version of the scene? And we were sitting there going, how are we going to, what are we going to do at the end of this movie? Everyone's expecting something giant to show up, the big Stay puff marshmallow. Oh, they're t- they're tiny, and that was it. And then and then we thought about Gremlins, and we thought about how much we missed movies like Gremlins that were horror films for twelve year olds. Yeah, playing with the blenders. No, it had that that Joe Dante vibe. And and you yeah. really thought through all the different things that could be done with the little marsh. He gave us just enough. Oh, but there's so much more. It could have I mean, gone like, endless. Yeah. Uh, that everywhere we went while we were writing is like if we were in a restaurant, if we were in a grocery store, no matter where we were, it's like, all right, if they were in here, this what they would do, they would do this and they would do this. Yeah, they just, it's like it takes over your mind. Yeah. I know I think that I think that way with killing. Um <laughs> but even but even Paul in the in the Walmart, just the way he does this Paul Rudd strut, like right. he can make anything I was gonna say funny, but it's really sexy. But he's just so but that's yeah. funny. And he's, yeah. he doesn't have to do anything. That that's that's the that's the gift of working with an actor like that though is and you 
you only realize that the more you watch the movie, how many little gifts they were giving you along the way. Finn Wolfhard really impressed me. You know, Finn, Finn wanted to be a director. He still wants to be a director. He's going to direct something next year. And he only auditioned for Stranger Things originally because he wanted to be near camera. Yeah. And I remember I asked him, towards the end of the shoot, I noticed he had built, he had started doing this thing where, you notice how his character was clumsy, like he would run into tree branches and things like that. None of that was me. That was all him. And I said, when did you come up with that? And he goes, you know what? I noticed that at my age, literally, he talks like this. I noticed at my age that I'm weird and gangly right now. Like my, my limbs feel disproportionate to my body. And I just thought it would probably be really fun for people if I was clumsy and running into things. I was like, how, how do you That's know that? That's pretty self-aware. Already? Yeah, it was insane. Andy has a band and a tour. We'll all be working for Finn Wolfhard yeah, exactly. in like three years from now. Um, the music, I loved the, I mean, I love the Elmer Bernstein, you know, the, the score, yeah, yeah. the original one. And you really, I thought you did a really nice job of using the dun, 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 dun. Like there's just some, there's such a nice familiarity to it. But of course, expanding into your own score. Talk about like kind of how, I mean, when you're doing that, obviously you can go for the easy emotional, right. you know, note and play every song that we know and love. But I thought you did a really great job of, Tipping, having a nod to it, having it at the right moment, saving it for the credits. Tell me about that balance. I mean, I my, my hat is off to Rob Simonson, who did the score for this film, because this is a very tricky one to emulate. Ghostbusters is not a score that you know as well as Indiana Jones or Star Wars, where you could sit here and hum five different themes, but you do know it. It's locked somewhere in your head where when you hear themes, you're like, you become aware that you're like, oh, I guess I know six different themes from Ghostbusters. And they were done by Elmer Bernstein, who's one of the great composers of all time, who made this interesting shift in his life in the early 80s where he started doing comedies. And had yeah, up until Animal then, House, yeah. yeah, had done Westerns and done movies like The Ten Commandments and had done these huge scale scores that had so much scale to them and had so much brass. They were these kinds of scores that just kind of like pin you against the wall. And he was suddenly doing comedies. And in this movie, he had this very clever idea of taking the own Marno, uh, which is the, the instrument you associate with the ghost sound, the and he, yeah. he wrote melodic lines for it. So for Rob to enter that and then to take my further direction of also, I want you to echo the themes of Alan Silvestri and you know, and John Williams and remind us of the nostalgia of what it was like to watch movies in the 80s and to mix that all up and find something that felt authentic to this film. Like, it, like again, it's like, are your actors good? Does the music work? And like, if you can get those two things right, then the film's going to turn out okay. Yeah, and, audience is pretty forgiving. Yeah, and I... I hand that to my cast and I hand that to Rob. Well, one of the biggest things um, that, you know, one of the best performances is actually a ghost. Mm -hmm. And I was in tears at the end of the movie. Um, And I remember when you showed me the first iteration of Harold studying, you know, McKenna's hand Mm -hmm. and them all lined up as the Ghostbusters. It just, you know, it seems like an obvious idea, but one that's so it's not obvious. It's so clear when you see it, but it's so hard to pull that off. Mm. And you did it so beautifully and it was just enough, but my God, what an incredible emotional ending. Talk about the process of doing that and what that was like for you and for all the cast members. I mean, how do you tell them pretend Harold's there? 
Well, and you're very generous when you say you did it because, you know, the truth is uh, there are things in this film that I had the least to do with. And, uh, and I had that idea, but the people who really did it were, you know, NPC up in Montreal who, who did something extraordinary. Uh, you know, I know I'm going to make a movie when I know the ending. I think there's a lot of great beginnings in the world. You can ask anyone, they probably have the start of a movie idea. There's very few great endings. I knew I, I knew I needed to make up in the air when I knew the end of up in the air. And I knew I needed to make this movie when I knew the end of it. Uh, and that came after the passing of Harold Ramis. All of a sudden, I knew who this girl was in the field. She was a Spengler. She was Egon's granddaughter. I knew who this kid was, was going to find the car. It's Egon's grandson. And we approached this film thinking, all right, it's going to end not with the Death Star blowing up. It doesn't end with an explosion. It doesn't, you know, it ends with a hug. And the movie will work depending on whether or not you believe in that hug. And half of that is the work that Carrie Coon does and that McKenna does. And how much do they need that embrace from this man? And they're such good actors that you just, even though there's very little, you know, attention paid to it story-wise, their performances are so extraordinary that they, when they finally get that hug, if you're someone who has been looking for that hug in the audience, you get it too. The actual performance of Egon was a combination of things. One, an actor named Bob Gunton, whose name you may not uh, recognize immediately, but you do know him because you've probably seen the Shawshank Redemption. And he was the warden in the Shawshank Redemption. And he played Egon on set so that the actors would have someone to, because you can't, you can't just throw in a stand-in. You can't just throw in anyone when it's going to be the fourth Beatle, when it's going to be the fourth member of this group that they all, and they're all saying goodbye to him. But then uh, NBC, who are brilliant, and they had done what, in my opinion, was the best virtual character ever done in cinema history, which was uh, 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 in Blade Runner 2049, uh, they did uh, Rachel. Mm-hmm. And which I, you know, when I saw that, I was just gobsmacked. Um, they started by creating Harold in his 30s. And they made a digital version of him in his 30s. And they started editing that version of Harold into the 84 Ghostbusters to a point where you wouldn't know wow. whether it was the real Harold or the digital Harold. And once they had, they had nailed the digital version of him in his 30s, they began to age him decade by decade Incredible. until they got to who he was in this movie. And then the final performance is a marriage of what Bob Gunton did as an actor and these little details that they, they, they found by studying Harold. Well, unfortunately, we we are out of time. Wait, I want to say one thing, though, before you do your conclusion. Before we conclude, Jason Reitman would like to say something. One of the best lines in this movie is only in there because of him. Eli came to the edit, and he's watching the movie, and we're watching the cut, and there's this scene at the end, you just saw, where they're in the car, and they're racing back to the house, and Carrie Coon says to Phoebe, Phoebe, you're... You're, you're, you're. And Phoebe looks up and says, I'm a scientist. She didn't originally say that. We got to the edit and Eli goes, why doesn't she say I'm a scientist? I was like, oh my God, of course she says that. And we did a reshoot to get that line. And I, I, I need to be speaking with you here to give you credit 
because it's now one of my favorite moments in the Thank movie. You. Well, and it's all because of you. You, you would have gotten to that anyways, for sure. No, After, I wouldn't. Have. Your dad would have said it to you at Cinema Vegas. Maybe. Um, <laughs> thank you, Jason. I in such an exciting career of such interesting, cool, fun films. Like what a what a treat for us, and what an amazing, truly an amazing accomplishment to take on your father's film, make it your own, and really make something that's just sensational. And congratulations. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 